Welcome once again to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Right here on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. We get together every weekend just like this and always very pleased when you decide to join us. Alan Dempsey is happy. He's pleased. He's our engineer. He gets us on the air beautifully. And uh, Andrew Herdliska is the producer of the show. Jen Tarbell is in Southern California. Her book is called $4.83, The Cost to Impact the Life of a Child for a Year, Maybe Forever. Jean, uh, Jen, excuse me, Jen, welcome to uh, Orlando. I'm so glad that we have a chance to talk about your book. How are you? I'm doing great this morning. I'm glad to be on. Thanks for having me, Pat. Uh, give me a background on this book, how it came about. What's the story here? Yeah. So uh, my friend Lance and I, Lance is the, the co-author of the book, uh, we have both gotten deeply involved in an organization called Hope International that does Christ-centered microfinance around the world. And I can get into that a little bit later, but the, the basic concept of microfinance is the idea of giving out a, a really small loan, 50, 100 bucks, to um, someone, a working entrepreneur in, in the developing country around the world. And, um, and Hope and, and many other organizations in that space tend to work with adult entrepreneurs. And I was in fundraising at the time and would often get asked the question, well, what about the kids? And it was in Lance's heart as well. Lance has five kids and, uh, and is passionate about the, the well-being of children. And so he was in a similar space and kind of thinking through, how do we tell this story about microfinance and kids? And so that launched us into writing this book. And, um, and I spent some time overseas and we did a whole bunch of interviewing and really tried to understand how does, how can you change the life of a kid? What does it actually cost? And is microfinance a, a good vehicle to do that through? And we concluded that it's the best vehicle um, and the cost is, is $4.83 to, to, to do that. Uh, your first chapter is called Parents Plus Opportunity Equals Kids Win. I- expand on that, please. Yeah, so we are firm believers in the importance of keeping families intact. That's God's plan, right? And that's, that's I think, what he designed as the way to effectively um, help the world. When you keep parents in place, their kids win. And so... So many parents around the world, this is why Christ Center Microfinance and Microfinance exists in general, so many parents simply lack a little bit of opportunity. They're living on, in, in poverty, a buck ninety a day around the world. 750 million people uh, still live on a dollar ninety or less a day around the globe. And so many of them simply lack a little bit of opportunity. Uh, they need someone who can say, hey, here's $50, here's $100. I believe in you. You have, God has given you everything that's necessary to um, to build a business, to uh, create a sustainable path for yourself and for your family, and you're just simply lacking a little bit of capital. And we believe that when you keep parents together, when you keep them in a country, unlike a lot of countries in the world where parents have to leave, you'll get work outside of the country and send money back in. When you're able to keep parents together, give them the chance to, to build a business that um, that is the most effective way to help the children. And so we expand on, on that uh, in, in that chapter. Uh, let's go to topic number two, Jen. Kids win through valuing work. Tell us more. Yeah, um, I'll tell you a quick story. 
I am, I'm such a firm believer in the power of story, but we were in um, the Dominican Republic. I was needing a donor trip at, at the time, and we were walking through the, the downtown right before dinner time, and it was an impoverished area. So, um, you know, the people that were that were there were, were living in, in poverty, and it was a little beach town. And as we walked through the town, um, there was a little boy uh, named Samuel, about 11 years old, who came and joined our group, and he just started walking with us. He didn't say much. He was, he was clearly poor. His clothes were tattered. He wasn't wearing any shoes. And he just was walking with us. And so conversation broke out amongst the group, how can we help Samuel? And one of the rules that, uh, that the organization that I was looking for at the time had was we were not allowed to give out any kind of handouts or money, right? We're there to do microfinancing, which is all about a hand up, not a handout. And so um, we were trying to figure out some creative ways that we could help Samuel. And he was carrying a backpack, and, and one of the gals in the group spoke Spanish and, and started conversing with him and asked him, hey, what's in your backpack? And he said, a shoe shining kit. And so one of, the, one of the people in the group thought, well, why don't we have, why don't we pay Samuel to shine somebody's shoes? And we thought it was a great idea. And I happened to be the only person wearing closed-toed shoes at the time. We're at the beach. Everyone had sandals on. And I had on a $10 pair of shoes from Target. And so we went over to the side of the road, and I sat down, took my shoes off. He got out his little shoe-shining kit, which consisted of a, a tin with some polish in it and a, an old toothbrush. And he took my shoes, and he just started to delicately scrub them and polish them and, and shine my shoes. And when um, I sat there, it was a really kind of a holy moment. I mean, this, this kid is beaming with delight at the opportunity to help these foreigners. And, um, and I'm sitting there kind of flabbergasted. I mean, it's a $10 pair of shoes I was probably going to throw away anyway. Um, and uh, anyway, so he, he polished away, and um, we paid him when he was due, and, and he went on his way and was so excited about the opportunity to have served and helped and, and earned and earned some money. And I want to contrast that with something that happened about 20 minutes prior. There was another little boy that approached our group, um, probably about the same age, and one of the gals in our group was carrying a, a, a bottle, half-drinking bottle of Gatorade, and he ran up to her, and he, and he grabbed the Gatorade bottle out of her hand, and he ran off snickering with his friend, so excited that he was able to steal something from a foreigner. And um, it just was this perfect juxtaposition that was launching us into the trip where we were going to see people that were empowered through, through microfinance. And, um, and I, to, to go back to this chapter, it's called, you know, Kids Win Through Value in New York. It was very clear that somebody in Samuel's life had showed him the importance of work. Maybe it was an aunt or an uncle who um, had a shoe-shining business and gave Samuel some extra polish and a toothbrush and showed him how to use it. But somewhere along the line, he learned that being able to provide something of value to somebody else is a blessing and something to be celebrated. Contrasted to the other, to the other kid who learned that it was okay to steal, who learned that it was okay to take something from somebody who had something that he didn't, that he wanted. And so it's so interesting, I think, when we, as, as parents, as adults, when we practice this concept of valuing work, our kids are able, the imprints on our kids, and it, I think, adds a lot of value, not just to their lives, but to our society. My guest is Jen Tarbell, the author of $4.83. Kids win with thriving families. That's your next topic, Jen. Yes. So, you know, this is, we, we talk a lot about, we explore the, um, the, the problem of orphan care around the world. And I say problem because it's estimated there, there are nearly 140 million orphans globally. But of that number, uh, 8 million are in orphanages. And of those 8 million, 80 to 90% actually have one living parent. 
So they're not technically orphans at all. And so often, the reason that they're put into orphanages is due to economic reasons. And so we explore again, if you give a parent a loan, if you're able to help that family economically, then in many instances, they do not have to face the challenge of having to give up their child into an orphanage. And, and Lance wrote this chapter in the book because this is very real to him because his son, one of his sons, A.B., um, was one of those children who had a, whose mom was living but who had to give him up to an orphanage because she couldn't afford to keep him. He would have died. And so Lance's family ended up adopting A.B., um, as a result, and 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 it's so, and Lance often talk about, gosh, if she had, if Martha, his mom, had just had a little bit of economic opportunity, she would have been able to keep her son. And they have a beautiful relationship with her now, and it's a wonderful story. But uh, we explore that in this chapter. Now, uh, Jen, I want you to uh, tell us about topic four: kin uh, kids win with sufficient clothing. Tell us more. Yeah, so, you know, it's interesting. It, uh, today, there's actually more than 1.5 billion people that are, effect, that are affected with um, parasitic diseases through contaminated soil, uh, and, and that's often a result of not having shoes. So poverty, so kids are deeply impacted uh, through poverty by means of not having sufficient clothing, and so we explore a story uh, of a gal in Rwanda whose family was impacted by the, the genocide and tell her story and uh, and how through microfinance and the ability to get a loan, um, their lives were changed. They were able to have sufficient clothes uh, for their family where they once had none. Um, so, again, one of the instances where uh, poverty is overcome by the power of Christ in our microfinance. Jen Tarbell is our guest. She's in Southern California. We're talking about her book, $4.83. We've got more with Jen. But first, we've got messages here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Stay with us here on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. Jen Tarbell is the author of $4.83. She's our guest in Southern California. Well, Jen, we've come to topic five. Kids win with spiritual growth, you write. Yeah, so one of the really amazing things about Christ Center Microfinance is the way that it functions addresses the spiritual needs of those that it serves. And so when you look at poverty, I, I love there's a um, book by Brian Ficker called When Helping Hurts, and he explores the, the different relationships that we all have um, with uh, with poverty. And and he talks about how when, when there is any kind of lack between us and God us and other people, us and ourselves, and us and creation, the experience is poverty, uh, which kind of, I guess, levels the playing field, so to speak. It means that you or I, living in America, can experience poverty, maybe in a different way, but we can experience poverty just as much as somebody overseas, you know, living in a, on $1.90 a day experiences poverty. There's might be the material poverty, yours and mine might be a spiritual poverty or poverty in, in, our, in the way we relate to creation, but we can all experience poverty, and our souls are all in need of repair and healing because of, because of that. And so one of the beautiful things, again, about Christ and microfinance is it addresses all of the needs of an individual. It's a, it's a holistic approach to poverty. It's not 
nearly transactional, saying, here's some money, go build your business, we're done. Uh, but it addresses the, the soul. It invites people to come to know Jesus. It invites people to, to read the Word, to pray together. Loan officers often have um, the, you know, the, the heart of a pastor and, and the mind and, and the, the skill set of a banker. And that's a really beautiful combination because they're able to walk with these people relationally and not just transactionally. Um, and so there's a lot of microfinancing that's happening globally, which is wonderful. Uh, but only 6% of microfinance clients worldwide are actually served by Christ-centered microfinance organizations. And so there's so much more room for people to have their needs met their needs met in a holistic way, which is one of the things we talk about here. But again, just looking at um, the holistic way that, that poverty can and I think should be dealt with um, in order to, to offer, offer a, a really good service to, to someone. Let's move to the next topic, Jen. Kids win with improved housing. Yeah, so we tell a story of a, a gal named Francine. It's a really fun story. She was actually a Haitian immigrant into the Dominican Republic and, and came with, with nothing and had just had a really hard story. Lost a child, her husband left, and she was in a really difficult situation. And um, her the, the home that they lived in was totally not sufficient. I mean, you were would look at this home and be like, no one should live there. And, um, and that was her situation with her kids. She could do nothing more. And so she was just in this dire place. And the Lord gave her a dream. And actually, in this dream, she, had, like, she was given the, the recipes for ice cream, down to the ingredients, the amounts, all these things. And she tucked the dream away. And I was like, that's so strange. And um, years later, she comes across an organization in the Dominican Republic called Esperanza. And they are a microfinance institution and give out small loans. And she remembers her dream. And so she takes out a loan to start making ice cream business. And she literally goes back to the, the recipes that she was given in this dream and puts them to use and creates these, what you and I would call popsicles, uh, made of ice cream. And she starts this business uh, going out into the community and selling these popsicles and, um, and ends up hiring on other people and building a storefront and growing another business as well and is able to build a new home for her family um, with a tin roof and sturdy walls and a, a real floor and uh, and her kids' lives were so, were so drastically different. They were able to afford school, clothing for school. She was able to afford taxi rides for her kids to, to go to school so they didn't have to walk for hours. Um, and uh, anyway, her their whole life was changed as a result of, um, of being able to receive a loan. Jen, tell us about kids' win with adequate health care. Yeah, so, you know, an interesting statistic, um, less than half of the world's population actually receives the health services that it needs. Um, many, and in many instances, that's as a result because people simply can't afford it. And, um, and again, oftentimes, sticking with the theme here, oftentimes people can't afford it because they simply lack some economic opportunity um, because many times these, these services, particularly in developing countries, are they're not... They're not excessive. I mean, it's not like they're going to the hospital and spending $1,000. I mean, it's, you know, maybe a, a few dollars or in, in some instances, a few cents um, to receive some sort of medical attention. But, but because of the constraints of poverty, oftentimes people aren't able to afford what they need. So we explore the story of a gal named Bertha um, who faced a, a whole slew of different health challenges with sick children um, and even for herself being unable to work as a result of illness from when she was a young child and how she overcame those things um, in order to provide adequate health care for her kids. 
my guest, and she's in California, Jen Tarbell. Jen, uh, tell us about topic eight. Kids win with sufficient food. Yeah, so, you know, it's crazy to think that more than 800 million people worldwide suffer from hunger. And it's an interesting time that we're in right now because that number has actually gone, gotten, has increased um, as a result of what's happening with COVID. And many people don't know this, but, you know, when you look at the impacts of this pandemic, the, the people who are actually suffering the most are those in developing countries. And I just heard even earlier this week that many of the countries that these crisis or microfinance organizations serve are going down into their, are going into their third lockdown in some instances. And what happens is, is that the poor are most drastically impacted because they are living day to day. They're not looking to living paycheck to paycheck. They're living day to day. And so their ability to be out in their community selling eggs, selling tomatoes, baking and selling bread, um, you know, repairing bicycles, they are relying on the income that's coming in that day to be able to provide food for their family, uh, money for to put their kids into school. Um, and, and so what's happened is that we've actually taken massive steps backwards in our attempts to fight global poverty. And so the estimates are somewhere around um, between 380 and 400 million more people have regressed into extreme poverty over the last year. And if you think about that in terms of the size of the United States, there's about 330 million people in the U.S. So that's like the entire nation of the U.S. regressing back into extreme poverty where when they, a year ago, were not in that position. Um, and so many of, as I said, many of these people are, are one, of the, one of the manifestations of poverty in that instance is not having sufficient food. And so many people around the globe don't have that. And being able to work and being able to, um, to earn money for your family gives the ability to uh, provide food. Jen, I want you to uh, talk to us <clears throat> about kids winning with basic education. Yeah, I love this story. Um, we worked with an organization called Edify that actually does microfinance for schools. So they provide loans for individuals who have a passion to build schools in their local community and provide an alternative to a public education. And so, um, and even though, you know, globally, uh, primary education, enrollment in primary education has actually reached about 91%. Um, 57 million children still don't have the opportunity to attend school. And even when they can attend school, um, oftentimes they're not able to attend regularly or the teachers don't show up or it's unsafe for them to get to school or they, don't, they can't afford the uniform to get there. There's so many different things that affect kids being able to get basic education. And so what NFI does, as I said, is they give out loans for, for individuals to great schools like this gal Herrig whose story we tell and she's actually able in the community where she built a school and runs a school she's able to help so many other kids um get an education that other wouldn't otherwise be able to get it and I we tell the story of a gal named Frey who um who has this this traumatic traumatic childhood and through her relationship with Herrig is able to get adopted and to find a place in her school and 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 receive an education where she wouldn't have otherwise been able to receive one. And not only that, but just to be able to be under the care of people who are speaking life and, and destiny over these kids, um, many of whom have faced 
some sort of significant trauma. Freddie was raped as a child and um, and abandoned, and so she's trying to overcome these really significant traumas that um, would set so many kids back. And she just was a very hopeless child. And being able to be adopted and accepted into this family, both the, the you know uh, nuclear family, but then also a family, the family at the school, uh, was was life changing for her and for so many other kids who are able to receive that kind of care. Kids win with freedom from trafficking. What's that mean, Jen? Yeah, so um, human and, and sex trafficking are major problems uh, around the, the globe. And some statistics show that there's actually more than you know 40 million people today that are enslaved in some form. Um, and so we explore this concept of how... Um, Economic opportunity actually is, I think, one of the greatest defenses against trafficking. And so, um, you know, I spent a lot of time in Ukraine and in Moldova where there's a lot of trafficking that happens and was able to have just some wonderful conversations with organizations doing work there and hear stories of uh, different survivors and kind of better understand how this works. And so often, so in Moldova, you actually, and I'll back up, so in Moldova, uh, about 25% of um, Working individuals in that country go outside of the country to find work. Um, their economic outlook is very bleak in Moldova. There's just not a lot of jobs. And so you have these young kids who are living in these rural and remote villages and believe that their only hope of having work and earning money is outside of their own country. And so they are, um, they're vulnerable to opportunity. And so when opportunity comes knocking in their door and they have no way of vetting it to understand if it's legit or not, they often get trapped in this cycle where um, they hear about an opportunity in Italy and it's a dishwashing opportunity and they, um, you know, they understand that their, uh, their flight is paid for and, uh, their housing is provided. And I tell the story of Daria's and her situation and, uh, and she gets there, she's putting her into, into an apartment with other girls and she starts dishwashing and, um, and she's noticing that her roommates all come home and they're dressed to the nines and they're, they've had too much to drink. We seem to be having like the, the, the funnest time, um, the most fun time that, that, that she could imagine. And she is, on the other hand, uh, learning that she actually has to pay back money for her flight. Room and board are way more than she ever expected. For every dish she breaks, she has to pay for it. There's all kinds of hidden fees and stuff that she's having to deal with. And the money that she thought she was going to be able to send home to her family, she actually has to spend on all these things, and she's coming up shy. So she's actually going into debt as a result of this opportunity. And so the months, the days, weeks, and months kind of tick by, and she's being worn down. So she asks her roommates, you know, what are you guys doing? Like, how are you making all the, this money? And they tell her that they're prostitutes. And at first, she's repulsed. I would never be a prostitute. But again, over time, she's just getting depressed and feeling really stuck. And so she finally says to one of her roommates, can you introduce me to the man that runs your brothel? And so they do. And it turns out that the man who runs the brothel is the owner of the business that hired her to do the dishwashing. And so on the backside of his business, he's running a brothel. But that was the plan all along. And so now she's asking her boss for a different kind of job. And so the technicalities of it are such that she's not, quote, unquote, being forced into it. She's actually choosing it, which is, again, a complete manipulation. But that's the way that a lot of these um, brothels are, are kind of screwing the line. And so then to make matters worse, she, you know, makes, starts making a lot of money and she can make more money if she recruits her friends. So she goes back to the vulnerable community where she's from 
and uh, starts recruiting her friends into the same business. And so that's how the cycle of trafficking um, is often perpetuated. Um, but again, these girls are just looking for economic opportunity. And so if you can help communities, if you can help small, these small economies start where um, these gr- where groups can come together and, and agree that they'll, uh, you know, help one another's businesses, I'll, I'll, get, I'll grow tomatoes, you, you raise chickens, you, you know, bake bread, and we'll all support each other's businesses. You can start microeconomies where nothing once existed. All it takes is a little bit of capital infusion. And so when you can do that, you can prevent instances of traffic, trafficking and keep girls and even boys um, safe with their families. Ladies and gentlemen, our guest has been Jen Tarbell, <clears throat> author of $4, <clears throat> excuse me, and 83 cents. Jen, <clears throat> wonderful to visit with you. Thanks so much for joining us. Terrific job. Thanks so much. Thanks so much, Pat. Appreciate the opportunity. Uh, uh, folks, uh, make sure you get your COVID shots. That's a word from uh, uh, County Mayor Jerry Demings, uh, particularly in the 30 to 40 age range. Uh, we need to get everybody vaccinated in this area so it's safe for all of us. So make sure you get vaccinated. It doesn't cost anything. It's no big deal. Uh, get it done. It's the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5. The word in Orlando. We will be right back. Stay with us. Jen Tarbell, our guest in that first segment, talking about our her book, author of $4.83, The Cost to Impact the Life of a Child for a Year, Maybe Forever. Well, we go from uh, <clears throat> Southern California, where we found Jen, <clears throat> to Colorado Springs. And we've found Jerry B. Jenkins, the best-selling author, longtime friend, author of The Chosen, I Have Called You by Name, Jerry, I'm uh, so glad to hook up with you and uh, looking forward to our visit. How have you been? Doing great. Always great to be with you, Pat. Thanks. Well, Jerry, I got to tell you a quick story. I was at the NRB convention in Dallas a couple of weeks ago, and all over that place, everywhere you turned, there was footage and signage about the chosen. And uh, your son, Dallas, was linked to it. I I need you to go back and explain all this. What's going on with The Chosen? And what what did Dallas do? And where do you fit in all this? Explain it to us. Yeah, it was really bizarre. When uh, when Dallas got out of college uh, years ago, I mean, he's in his mid-40s now, but he he wanted to be a movie maker and and left behind was sort of in its heyday. So I had some names. And so we started a little production company, and he... He was in Hollywood for about 10 years and, and made several feature films. But he had one about four years ago that I thought was brilliant. In fact, I think everything Dallas does is brilliant, but I'm not always right. You know how it is with your kids. And uh, the, the the producers, the, the distributors, everybody thought it was going to be fantastic and that if it succeeded, he'd be signed up for the next 10 years and making movies with this this place. And the thing just tanked the first weekend. It was called The Resurrection of Gavin Stone. It was a really good movie. It just it just died in the box office. And they said, "Hey, we tried. Thanks anyway. Good luck, and be you know be warmed and be filled." You know. And so he was really at at a low ebb. And he thought here he had had all this this potential, a, a great career lined up, and it looked like it was over. 
and he and his wife were just sort of praying and crying and wondering, you know, what next. And he thought, you know, maybe I'm just supposed to do simple stories of Jesus. I'd, he'd, he'd done them for his church. He'd done stuff for Christmas and Easter things. So he took a, he took a little pilot that he'd done for a, a Christmas uh, show called The Shepherd and um, put it online, and some, some guys in you know, the, the Angel Studios saw it and just freaked over it and said, let's crowdfund this and, and make a TV series out of it. And he thought, if we crowdfund it, we'll make like $800. Well, they put it up. They said to people, if you'd like to see more of this um, kind of a story, they raised um, over $10 million mm. in just a matter of months. It was It's the highest crowdfunded independent, you know, any kind of media thing ever, Christian or secular. And uh, and so he made this, this first uh, season of The Chosen. And... You know, even though I sort of financed the start of his career, I didn't have anything to do with this. This was on him. And so as it as it exploded, I kind of pressed my nose up against the window and said, can I play too, you know? And, and he saw the value of having me write a novel to go for to go along with each season of The Chosen. Mm. So that, that's what I have called you by name is. It's a novel that, that matches the first season. And I'm working on the second one right now. And... Uh, you know, you and I hooked up years and years ago. Your your life story was my fourth book, and this this second novel in the Chosen series that I'm working on right now is my 200th. So mm. I don't do anything. I don't do anything else. I don't sing or dance or preach. <laughs> this is all I do. But it's been a great thrill, and the Chosen has just become a phenomenon. It's been seen 150 million times in every country of the world in 50 languages, and it just keeps growing every day. It's just amazing. Jerry, what does the chosen mean? What does that uh, what's that signify? It's the people that Jesus chose to follow him. So in the first season, uh, we're talking about Mary Magdalene, Simon Peter, Matthew the tax collector, and Nicodemus, who of course was just a seeker. But um, Dallas's contention in this is that when we see Jesus movies or or TV shows. They're hard to identify with because Jesus is perfect, and they usually have a British actor speaking in King James English, and he almost has a halo. He looks like a statue or a painting or something. And he said, let's, let's tell this story from the perspective of the people he chose who were imperfect like us and who were different from having encountered him. And let's speculate, um, obviously always doing justice to the Scripture when you come to a story that's actually in the Bible, we want it to be exactly the way that, that whispered prayed. But what might have led up to it? What other characters might have been involved? What might have been said or done? And so we have some backstory on Simon Peter. We've got backstory on Mary Magdalene, that type of thing. And then Jesus is very human in this. I mean, he's obviously the God-man. He's, he's the fully God and fully man. But he has a sense of humor, and he he interacts with his disciples and teaches them, and and uh, people are just saying that the, the difference this makes is they can relate to Jesus, and they can definitely relate to these orbital characters because they're just like we are. They're flawed. They're human. They make mistakes. Uh, they need forgiveness, and and uh, so it just he's just making it accessible, and that's it's made it fun for me as a novelist because the structure is already there, the sequence of the story. What happens, um, that's all there. And, and what I bring to the table then is the inner monologue. What are these people thinking about when this happens, and how do they feel when it happens? And so 
Um, having great fun with it, and it's just a thrill to see Dallas, you know, doing what I think he was meant to do. Jerry, I remember years ago, Campus Crusade did the Jesus film, which was shown all over the world, and I guess still is. Right? Is this kind of uh, the same concept? It's it's sort of the same concept. I think the difference is that um, this is really more from the perspective of the the orbital characters. Uh-huh. Uh, we really get to know Simon and his wife, and we get to know Nicodemus. Um, and they speculate that Nicodemus was not, was more than a seeker, more than just that meeting with Jesus at night. Um, what what made him so curious? Uh, usually, the Pharisees, of course, are are painted as villains because they were legalists and they were critics and that type of thing, and they they were always questioning Jesus. Um, Dallas and his writing team show Nicodemus as a man who is truly devout. Uh, he is a Pharisee, and he is a critic, and that type of thing, but he's watching what's going on here, and he's saying, what if this is true? What if this is the Messiah? And so then when he meets with Jesus, and he says, you, know, you must be of God, because nobody can do the miracles that you're doing, and uh, and they show, or Jesus actually calls him and says, you know, you should give up your life and follow me too. And Nicodemus almost does it in this. You know, scripture doesn't say that he ever left the Sanhedrin or left his life and followed Jesus. But in, in the end, he did, um, you know, he was there at, at the, after the crucifixion and that type of thing. So we know something happened in his life, and it's just fun to speculate on that stuff. And I think the viewers and the readers of, the, of, of my novels give us that literary license to say, this could have happened. We don't violate Scripture, but we speculate on what might have happened there. Jerry, explain to me how these uh, films are done. Are they full-length features, and how do people see them? Uh, they don't go to movie theaters, right? No, in fact, that's, that's the interesting thing. They, they have an app. It's just called the Chosen App. Mm-hmm. And you can, down, you can download it on your Android phone or your Apple phone, and then w- once you you find the one of the chosen episodes, they have uh, eight episodes a year, and they're gonna they're, they're gonna have uh, uh, se- seven seasons. Um, you can cast those to your smart TV just with a click of a button, and they're all about they're all in a forty minute range or so. I'd say thirty or forty minutes, just like binge watching TV, and they're free. They, and, and people wonder, how in the world do they pay for this? Because it's millions of dollars a year to do this. They need $100 million to finish the whole thing. And they say, we want people to be able to see it without having to pay for it. So if you can afford to help pay it forward so people all over the world can see it, uh, they just give you ways to do that. And they say, you don't have to. You can watch it free and enjoy it. Just tell people about it. But if you can help, and, and that, you know, as soon as they made that decision, their income even doubled. I mean, people just keep wanting to do this. And there are certain products they can buy, shirts and hats and things like that. It all goes for just spreading the word, getting this around the world. Uh, it's it's an incredible phenomenon, just the system, the way they do it, because it's outside the Hollywood system and the TV system. And even Variety Magazine and other secular publications are writing about how this little indie thing is, is turning the, the industry upside down. Jerry, um, let me ask you this. Are are the same actors in the uh, different sequences, and how long does it take to do a a segment, and where is it filmed, and are they professional actors? What's the story? 
Yeah, Dallas used, um, you know, Hollywood crew and, and cast. And one of the things that was really important to him was to get people that are ethnically correct for this. You can't have, you know, blonde-haired, blue-eyed guys with makeup on trying to look like Middle Easterners. So they really went for character actors that are, are from the Middle East, most of them. And um, the the same actors are, are locked in throughout. And uh, there's a few favorites that Dallas has used in his previous movies that are playing Roman soldiers and that type of thing. Um, but there, that's been one of the secrets of the success of this too. So people, you just don't see a weak acting part in in it. It's just incredible, and uh, it takes them a couple of months to shoot uh, a season, and they shoot some of it on a on a set in Utah, which is a recreation of their city of Jerusalem. It's a fifty million dollar set, mm. and it's it's just uh, you know Diana and I went to to visit one time just to watch them do this thing. And we'd been to Israel, been to Jerusalem, and couldn't tell the difference. I mean, it literally looked like the, the same city. And then most of it is filmed and finished in a, uh, on a Salvation Army camp, of all things, a thousand-acre camp in Midlothian, Texas. And uh, they shot the feeding of the 5,000 there. They shoot, you know, most of the rest of it that they don't do right in Jerusalem there. And uh, Dallas and his family are actually moving to Texas because that's where all the work's going to be and keeps him closer to home and not having to leave the family to, to do this. But uh, it's quite a production. It's getting bigger because of the success of it. They've got, you know, a huge cast and crew. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's like shooting a movie, but it's, uh, it's, it's really binge-worthy TV. Uh, Jerry Jenkins is our guest, a best-selling author for many, many years. And we're talking about this uh, phenomenon, The Chosen. So, Jerry... You watch a segment and then write your 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 book based on what you've seen in that forty minute show, uh, movie. Yeah, and uh, you know, I, I have I, I say I have to. I get to watch each segment, uh, each episode, probably about twenty times. And I tell you, Pat, I I never get tired of one scene. Every scene moves me, mm. and I'm I keep thinking, you know, is this just because this is my kid doing this? Yeah, sure, I'm proud of him, but. You know that says something when you when you can watch them over and over and they're deeply moving. I mean, um, it's everybody says just make sure you've got your tissues with you when you watch this thing because uh, you you see forgiveness, you see healing, you see reconciliation, you see moving stories every time. And it's uh, I'm just having the time of my life doing this. Jerry, uh, let me let me see if I've got this right. Did you say that eventually there are going to be 17 of these 40 minute shows? Is that Correct or what did I hear? Actually, there's going to be seven seasons. What's that? Eight, what's that mean? Uh, so, so seven seven seasons of eight episodes each. Good so man. there'll be fifty. There'll be fifty six segments uh, by the end, and uh, they just finished uh, showing season um, season two. And as I say, anybody can see all of season one and two for free just by downloading the the chosen app and. Uh, and then you can cast it to your TV or you can watch it on, on your phone or whatever you want to do. So, so Jerry, 56 separate 40-minute shows. Um, right. And who, who are the writers? Who does all, the, all that work? Um, Dallas has two writers that work with him. And um, um, they're guys that he's known in the business for, for years. And uh, they're really special. They're, they're guys that are you know, they're believers, obviously. And and really get into the, the studying of the, the scripture. And he's got some great consultants. He uses uh, 
his Bible prof from college from more than 20 years ago, and and uh, a lot of other consultants like that to make sure they're on track theologically. And uh, it's it's quite a quite a production. Yeah, Jerry B. Jenkins is our guest. He's in Colorado Springs, author of The Chosen. Stay tuned to all this, folks. There's a lot going on. It's a novel. Uh, based on season one of the critically acclaimed TV series. Uh, Make sure, ladies and gentlemen, you get your vaccination. Mayor Demings has stepped up and said, particularly in that 30 to 40 years age group, it's not getting done properly. So it doesn't cost anything. Get it done. It's it's, uh, good for you, but uh, awfully important to this community. Those vaccinations are vital. Uh, More with Jerry Jenkins right after these messages. This is the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. Jerry Jenkins is our guest from Colorado. We're talking about this whole new series, The Chosen. So, Jerry, does that mean uh, you're going to be writing 56 uh, books based on these, uh, these films? Now, actually, each novel covers one season of eight episodes, so I'll be writing uh, seven, one for each season. I got it. Now, so tell me about, and book one, we're waiting, you're finishing book one and we're waiting for it? Uh, book one is out. I'm writing book two now because they've, they've just finished season two. So tell me about book one, Jerry. Book one is called I Have Called You By Name, and that comes from the scene where um, in the in the first season, it's really interesting because they show Mary Magdalene and she's had a horrible past and a, and a rough life and she's demon-possessed and she's hiding behind the name Lilith. And so she lives her life as this woman living in the red quarter of, of, the, of the town and uh, always oppressed and always pursued by men and that type of thing. And um, she's in a bar and she's drinking uh, it's a, a bar called the Hammer, where these first-century guys play dice games and that type of thing. And guys are coming on to her, and she's miserable, and she's got headaches from being possessed and that type of thing. And she she gets another drink, and a hand comes over her hand, mm. and a voice and a voice says, "You don't need that. That's mm. not for you." And she's like, "Oh, these men, you know, leave me alone." And it's Jesus, and he's just saying. You know, that, that's not for you. And she says, just leave me alone. i got to get out of here. She runs out of the place in the middle of the night. Mm. And he, he follows her, and he calls her by name. He calls her by her real name. See, that's the thing, Pat. That thing moves me every time. Mm. And, and mm. she, she says, I've, I've told nobody my real name. How do you know my name? Mm. And he says, I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. And she realizes this this is her creator and her redeemer, and he, he embraces her, casts the demons out, and she becomes a follower of Jesus. I mean, it's a moving scene. Now, that's not from the Bible. We don't know what happened, what led up to Jesus casting out the demons from Mary Magdalene. But it's an interesting you know, concept, and it works, and especially on screen. And it made for the perfect title, I thought, for the book, because... This is really what what Jesus does when he calls anyone. He knows us by name. Mm. He calls us from where we are and and makes us somebody we were not. And so that's that's the special part of this. Jerry, uh, the key to these movies is who plays Jesus. And we've seen them 
uh, in different movies, and we have different Jesus. How, how about the Jesus in this one? What, what do you think of him? He's really something special. I, Diana and I got to meet him, and, and uh, his name is Jonathan Rooney, and he's a character actor, and uh, um, you know he, he's been he's been in all kinds of stuff before that you might recognize his face, but not not the name. Um, and he really looks the part, and of course he's got the beard and the hair and everything. Um, he's a devout guy and and really special. Dallas has interviewed and talked about what it means to try to play a perfect person, you know, and he said that, of course, the thing that's moving to him about it is that Jesus' humanity comes through, too. And there's, you know, there's little inside jokes, even. People often don't think they're so revered Jesus, which we should, but they think, you know, if he's human, would he have a sense of humor? There's a scene coming, I'll, I'll give a little spoiler alert, but Jesus is around the campfire with the disciples trying to explain a parable, and the guys are kind of horsing around, and some of them are, are arm wrestling. And one of the big strong guys, I think it's it's uh, Big James, uh, loses for the first time in arm wrestling. And one of the guys says to Jesus, I can't believe he lost. And Jesus says, even I didn't see that coming. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's a great line when you think about it. And, and why not? You know, the, the, this it, it, just, it just makes people laugh. And of course, he's just as as compassionate and gets just as sad when he sees people that break his heart. And, and, uh, it, it's fun to watch the miracles, the healing of the leper and, uh, you know, there's the healing of the man that was lowered through the ceiling of the house. I mean, there's, there's just some great, great scenes in here. Uh, Jerry Jenkins is our guest. We're talking about this whole phenomenon called the chosen Jerry. I'm just thinking here with you, um, uh, back in the old Testament, there's so many, interesting scenes. I could see Dallas, you know, years down the road, uh, plunging into some, you know, some amazing Old Testament stuff. Uh, yeah, and there are people there are people talking about having him, you know, once the, the gospel thing is done, to maybe even go into Acts and show this, the life of Paul and yes. where, where, where Peter goes from here. There's all kinds of possibilities, and uh, yeah, it could be something special. You know, it's interesting that this phenomenon has sort of happened to Dallas at the same age I was when Left Behind came out. And so that's, it's been good for me to be able to advise him that you let the phenomenon take care of itself and stick to the basics, stick to what you're doing. Um, you know, the thing will get bigger and you'll get more visible and all kinds of things will happen, but, but that's not the point. The point is what you're doing, the ministry you're doing. Jerry, how did the Left Behind experience uh, change your life? Well, it, you know, it's a once-in-a-lifetime thing, obviously, and... and uh, you know, most people say if you if you write a book that sells a hundred thousand copies, that's off the charts. That's fantastic. That's you know unbelievable, and and I know that I've written you know as I said two hundred books, and I've uh, only had a few that have sold a hundred thousand copies or more. And uh, I know you're in that category too. But the Left Behind series was so huge when it came out. There was a, a period of a couple of years there during the heyday of it where the, where the first book alone was averaging 275,000 sales per month. You know, Pat, it's been 26 years since that first book came out, and that series still is selling around 15,000 units a month after all this time. So needless to say, it, it gave me means I never expected to have. It gave me visibility I never expected to have. And really what it does, you know, everybody wants to, you know, maybe not everybody, but most people want to be famous or known or appreciated, 
when it comes like that, it's it's overwhelming. And it really, of, of all things, it, it humbles you rather than makes you proud, I think. I mean, I just realized this is clearly a God thing. It's not of, of my doing, and I need just to hang on for dear life. And I've tried to use those those means and that visibility to, to just keep expanding the kingdom. Tim LaHaye through all this, what what was your relationship with him? Well, he was fantastic. I really miss him. Uh, ironically, he died on Dallas's birthday five years ago, mm. and um, he he was ninety years old at the time. Because he was the age of my parents, there was sort of a dynamic there, and uh, I really respected and admired him. And he was the theological uh, resource there, and the you know the Bible expert. And, uh, you know, I'm not a theologian or a scholar. I'm just the writer. But I got the fun part. I got to, to do the writing. Tim was such a great encourager. I would send him 100 or 200 pages at a time, and he would call me and say, send me more. I want to find out what happens myself. So mm. uh, it was great. And I still keep up with his wife. She's still doing well. And, and uh, yeah, he was really something special. I can remember uh, he was kind of a polemic guy. He would speak out on issues of the day and all that. He was kind of a you know political conservative and all that. But my memory of him is when we would go to autograph parties, all of a sudden he would be missing. He'd be missing from the table. And I'd look up and he'd be in the corner praying with somebody, just somebody he had just met. And, and uh, mm. that's the kind of guy he was, a true true minister and a true example of the believer. Jerry, um, how long will you be writing? Till your last breath? I think so. I, I don't see anything in, in Scripture about retiring and, and you know, at the risk of sounding falsely modest, I really believe that I'm mono-gifted. I, as I say, I don't sing or dance or preach. Writing is what I do, and I, so I feel obligated to keep doing it. I don't write the number of books that I used to. I used to average about four a year, but uh, I'm very selective and, uh, and do the stuff that I really want to do, uh, and I still enjoy it. I asked Diana one time if I should think about retiring, and she said, some what? <laughs> So I think she knows that my work is something I enjoy, and, and so it really doesn't become work. Jerry Jenkins has been our guest. Jerry, I'm so happy to talk to you. And uh, uh, I, as I said when we started, uh, The Chosen was all over that convention hotel. I mean, everywhere you turned, you saw it. And I tried to see Dallas, but he was tied up in meetings. And uh, But I did see uh, the handiwork of all that he's done. It was exciting. Yeah, that's great. We're really proud of him. Jerry Jenkins, uh, we've got, uh, well, we got a wrap-up. That's what we've got next right here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. <clears throat> it's the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, the word in Orlando. We'll be right back. Well, I'm so glad that you joined us here to hear Gene Tarbell and then uh, Jerry Jenkins, longtime friend. I'm so happy that we could visit with him Uh, I do want to remind you that my latest book is out. It's called Revolutionary Leadership, and we look at the key leaders during the Revolutionary War period and what they did as leaders and why they were effective, and uh, I think you'll enjoy that book. And uh, go up to Amazon. That's the best way to do it. Or Barnes & Nobles. we got Barnes & Nobles all over Central Florida, so make sure that you plug in. So, So we're back next weekend for more. Uh, here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Stay tuned all day long to the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, the word in Orlando. You will be better off for it. See you next weekend, folks, and have a wonderful week ahead. God bless.